Next Monday, the 17th of January, is Martin Luther King Jr. Day. It is to celebrate the legacy and the thoughts of Dr. Martin Luther King. Also, it is a day that the United States will be called to reflect on the history of racism in this country. And discussions on racism have never ceased to be parts of the public debate. But these discussions have been more prevalent in the last years. Questions are being raised, such as, are the United States still institutionally racist? Or what exactly is racism? Is this something that lives in our minds? Is it a relationship of power? And how are we to understand the evil of racism? This is New Idea Live, the podcast of the Ayn Rand Institute. I'm Nikos Odirakopoulos, a visiting fellow at the Ayn Rand Institute. And with me is Onkar Gade, senior fellow. Onkar, hi. Hi, Nikos. So I've been taught at university that what mostly constitutes racism is a relationship of political power. That racism is a phenomenon where one group that holds institutional power in society is oppressing another group which is lacking this power. Is this how Ayn Rand understands racism? No, not as what that's what's essential to racism. I think she certainly thinks that you can have manifestations where a group has political power and is oppressing other groups and other individuals along racist lines or the justification for that oppression and injustice is given a racial or a racist spin. So I think she certainly thinks there is that phenomenon. But if we're trying to understand what racism as such is, it's a much broader phenomenon than that. She has a very interesting essay called Racism that she wrote in 1963. It's really worth reading for anybody who's interested in on broadly on the issue of race and racism, and more particularly in thinking about the US situation. I mean, she's typically commenting on US uh, culture, US politics, and so, but has a, a world view as well, and has a philosophical view. So it's it's what she says is applicable to any place. So I think it's worth talking at the outset about what the way she looks at racism, part of what is uh, unusual in the way that she looks at racism. And reading this essay, what comes to attention very, very soon is that she views it as something that isn't mostly something that has to do necessarily with race but it's something that starts with the way you view the world. So she gives us an example with which for many people would not have any relationship to racism. She says that if you believe that the lineage, let's say of your family or the actions of some other people said in any way, any shadow on what should be your values or your actions, or she gives the example of this very usual phrase that uh, at least in Greece is very prevalent that what you did puts the family uh, at shame. And she claims this is at the starting point in terms of a mindset of racism. But someone would say, but this has nothing to do with race. So how does she link this uh, way of thinking with racism? The essay starts off with a 
characterization or definition of racism. And this is what she writes. So this is a literal quote. Racism is the notion that a man's intellectual and characterological traits are produced and transmitted by his internal body chemistry. So you can think of that as it's a man's intellect and his moral character are produced and transmitted by his internal body chemistry. And then she says what this, so that's what she gives, it's, it's a notion. So it's not, it, it sometimes rises to the level of it's part of an ideological viewpoint, but she doesn't think of that, that's not essential. It's just it's when someone has this notion, when they look either at themselves or other people and think their intellect and moral character is produced and transmitted by their internal body chemistry, that's a racist way of looking at yourself and or other people. And then she adds, what this means in practice, and again, quoting from the essay, which means in practice that a man is to be judged not by his own character and actions, but by the characters and actions of a collection of ancestors. Close quote. And so it's a broader perspective than typ people typically think about race. Race, for, I think for her, or skin color, as it often was in the US, it's, it, it what is just sort of one marker, one supposed marker of your internal bodily chemistry that's supposedly producing what's in your mind, like your intellect, your ideas, and your values, your moral character. It's just, that's one version of saying, okay, skin color is the big indication of what's going on inside your body that's, that's responsible for this. And it's passed on, like you get inherit your skin color from your parents and you pass it on to your um, offspring. So, but that, like she thought, I think she thinks of that, that's a detail that it's in, in the US, it's about skin color versus it being what's in common is thinking that there's something um, physiological, I mean, she puts it body chemistry, that's responsible. And this is why the, the example you brought up from, you say this is common in Greece, and there's an example that's common from, I have a partly Indian heritage, um, that, that is my, uh, on my father's side, comes from India. You put it that it's the, the, this idea that you have to protect the family name. And th there it's like, it's not race, but if you step one level of abstraction higher than that, it's, yeah, like your family, there's supposed to be something about your sort of your blood and body chemistry, that that's what's passed on. That's what makes you a family, that you have this genetic lineage that's supposedly passed on. And not, I mean, obviously a family, like there is such a thing and, and certain characteristics and traits are passed on. But if you view it as the trait of what you think and what you value is passed on, that's what she said. That is the thing, it, that's not under the control of the individual. It's something that he's a product. He's a product of his own bodily chemistry, which in turn is a product of what he inherited from his uh, and, so, and that's why, so then the family becomes a unit that you really focus on and is like, is this a good family or a bad family and don't tarnish the family names. Uh, the, another example that she gives again that people wouldn't think of as racist is she puts a parent who's, parents who search the genealogical trees of a prospective son-in-law 
to feel like is he have good blood in effect of good blood or bad blood this happens all the time in indian culture and it wouldn't be thought of as like this is racist but it's like what caste is he from and is he from the higher class or the lower caste and the caste is just really just it's about your blood and body chemistry and that supposedly is what determines what's essential about you and another interesting comment anran makes in is that in the same way than let's say someone who is a, a communist would appropriate the wealth of someone else in the same way when people say let's say i have white uh, pride or racial pride in a way they are appropriating the achievements of other people yet there is a question to be asked here so to bring an, an example as a greek when last year yanis adetokubo won the title of the nba and he was mvp i felt joy as someone who we don't have the same lineage necessarily but we have the same cultural references we kind of feel that he's our guy or to put it in in different terms ayn rand you could imagine here rooting for bobby fischer when he would play chess with someone from a Uh, from another from another country so where is the line between i feel that something is connecting me with quote my people although i might not know these people personally but i i feel happy for their success and all the stuff and when does this become collectivism or if it has to do with issue of race when does it become an example of racism or racial thinking it depends on what the specifics are i'm very uncomfortable when you describe it as my people i'm very uncomfortable with that because th- then it it's something like we have something essential in common because of our ancestry and it's sort of it's passed on and so we're of one people or it another way like more derogatory way at least from my perspective a more derogatory way of describing that would be they're part of my tribe like it's my tribe or my gang and the more my people is meant to activate something like that it's part of my tribe my gang i think it's very problematic and it is racist but if it's more about your country so in greece it you can think is it about the country or is it about just a physiological a supposed physiological group like something like I'm from Canada and yeah sometimes when in the Olympics are on and I cheer for the Canadian athletes now nobody thinks Canada like that's a people or a race because there's so many people from all over the world who come and immigrated to Canada so they don't think of it like that and I think having a certain um like and um pride and respect from for your nation or country if it's deserving of that that can be uh entirely proper um i ran certainly had enormous respect for america and the fact that she i mean she fled soviet russia and the fact that she could come that there was a place like america i mean she viewed that as an enormously good thing and that she respects and admires america is different than thinking of it like they're my people and whatever they do that's fine it's that's okay that's or good because they're my people and so and even for a country like the more it's yeah my nation right or wrong the more it's akin to racism the more it's yeah there's certain things that there are certain things i like about canada and 
that it, it's for in a sports competition where it doesn't really matter who you're cheering for and, the, and then you cheer for this. Yeah, that I think it's fine. But the more it's my people, my tribe, my gang, the more it's akin to racism. So the distinction, the way I understand this, in the one case, you are motivated by a value. You see someone whom you know the background, as in the case of Giannis and Greece, we know where he started from. And his, his, uh, his way to the top is an inspiring story. And in a way, we are cheering a case of value, pursuit, and achievement. And the fact that he was from the next neighborhood, uh, five minutes from where we live, it's something that makes it slightly it con it more concrete. Whereas it would be tribalism if you and, and something more collectivistic when you say, just because this guy is Greek, I like him. Whether he's a good person or a bad person, doesn't matter. He's part of, quote, my people. So, yeah. Onkar, then uh, are we to understand then that racism is first and foremost an epistemological phenomenon in terms of it starts from how you view the world and then the politics is a, the political manifestation, the violence, the purges, all that stuff is a derivative. Yeah, it, it's, it's a deep philosophical position actually. So it's epistemological, it's metaphysical, and it's moral. And all those then can get, if, if this kind of viewpoint gains political power, then all those can manifest politically. But it's to say metaphysically, it's a view that says um, that there's not really individuals, so that people are determined by their genetic lineage. And as a result of that, you have to view them as a collective, like they're all the same. And what you say about Greeks, like either they're good or they're bad. What you say about Italians, again, thinking of it more as a, as a kind of tribe, not just a country where people from around the world now live in Italy, but Italians, like it's, then it's, it's, you're thinking of it as this is a group and the individual is not really significant. It's the group. The group determines everything through the genetics and the sort of the passage of time and, and birth and passing on the genes that supposedly determine everything. So it is, it's, um, it's, she puts it, it's a version and she thinks it's, it's a very primitive version of both determinism, that it's this, this crude biological body chemistry determinism and collectivism. So you're determined, you don't choose, you don't have individual control, you're determined by your outside factors, which is your group of ancestors. And so then the result is, in terms of epistemologically, how to think then, the way you evaluate is you look to the group and say like, what, is, what do I think, or um, are they smart, dumb, good, bad? And then you just, carry that over to the individual. Oh, so you're Greek, you must be really bad. Or you're Greek, you must be of the master race or something like that. And that, that is, so the epistemology comes from the metaphysics. And Rand's view, which I think is right, um, and again, if, if people pick up the essay, you'll see this in there, that it's, she thinks of racism, part of its appeal and why it had, like if you look historically, and the way that she thinks of it, and it's not just about skin colors, it's this broader phenomenon. It's all over the place historically. And she thinks of it as it's a form of pseudo self-esteem. And this is the moral value, of what it's doing. It makes a person who hasn't made much of his life 
can say, look, yeah, but I'm like, it's take, take what people think of, and it, I mean, certainly is one of the major manifestations of racism in the 20th century, Nazi Germany. You've got like this loser German who's not done anything with his life um, and thinks, yeah, but I'm part of the master race. Like, look how great I am. And, and that's a way of propping himself up in his own eyes when he knows at a deeper level that there's no reason that he should think of himself as good. Um, so it, it's, a, it's a form of pseudo self-esteem. And part of that, the way that works is, is typically you have to prop yourself up and you have to irrationally um, tear other people down. So look at, oh yeah, I, I'm a German who's done nothing with my life, but I'm part of the master race. And then you've got this successful Jew who owns a small business say, well, he's corrupt and evil. We should be smashing his windows. And so, and so it's, this, it's, it's um, a way of, of gaining a pseudo self-esteem, of feeling good about yourself when you don't have reason to. And she thinks that's yeah. part of its mechanics sort of on the moral level. I had the university professor and I remember him asking him, he, he was teaching American history and I asked him, why would someone be a racist? And the answer he gave, it was 2004, I still remember. He says, because when you are a nobody and when you're nothing, you want to think that someone is even below where you are. So as you said, it's a pseudo self-esteem in two directions. One, you get pride because let's say in my case, Aristotle was the greatest philosopher ever and we happen to inhabit the same piece of land, but also that I feel good because some other people supposedly I'm, I'm better than them. In both cases, without me having done anything. Now, right. a discussion which is also uh, at the center of racism is whether it's political expression has more to do with freedom, that too much freedom might lead to racism, or with control and collectivism. So Ayn Rand says that the political manifestation of racism is collectivism and, and dictator and, and, and statism. However, quite often we hear also the opposite. And this happens, interestingly, from two different directions. So for example, someone from the left would say, look, you people who advocate freedom don't realize that by advocating freedom of choice or property rights, you are paving the ground for racism because then people will be free to discriminate. And they bring the usual examples where you have a, a shop and they would put back in the day a sign which says X group should not enter. But also interestingly, you have many racists, open, like self-declared racists, who flirt with the freedom movement or with libertarianism. And they said, look, we don't want to coerce anyone. We believe, we believe that in the non-aggression principle that people have rights and all that stuff. All we are saying is, let us decide. Let us be free to, to have our own communities, our own rules, to trust, uh, to, 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 to respect contract rights, and we will deal with the people we want to deal. And this group will be there by themselves. The other group will be there by themselves. This will be more peaceful. So. Could it be that freedom is part of the political expression of racism, put differently? If you leave people free, what you will end up is this almost voluntary racist uh, uh, discrimination. I think that's completely wrong. The, 
And historically, if one thinks about this, and this is part of what Ayn Rand discusses in the essay, there's not historical evidence for this. It is what the kernel of truth to be a little generous in that view, I think is, it is true that freedom does not automatically or magically wipe out uh, racist notions in individual people's minds. So if, if there are individuals who think that, uh, yeah, the, a person's intellectual and moral character are produced by their body chemistry, so the fact that he lives in a free society doesn't, by that, by that fact, um, erase that idea in his mind. But having said that, the freedom pushes in the direction of encouraging people to be rational and to eliminate from their mind and from their ideas and from their worldview, irrational ideas of which racism certainly is one. And part of the, the, the evidence that Ayn Rand points to in thinking about this issue is that it's in the freer countries that you see racism. So in terms of people's individual thinking about, yeah, I view myself and others in racist terms, uh, this kind of deterministic collectivist way of looking at people, you see that go lower and lower. And she gives, here's two examples um, of in America that melting pot comes to be seen as like, this is one of the good characteristics of American society. That's a melting pot that people can come from all over the world. It doesn't matter what their skin color is, what their uh, family history is. They can start anew in America and make something of themselves as individuals. And melting pot didn't mean, and this is part of what Ayn Rand argues, didn't mean sort of we melt everyone into a gray conformity there are, and everyone is like equally shabby as what was said about people in the Soviet Union. It's rather everybody is free and has an opportunity to rise as far as their ability and effort will take them. And like this was, it's a, it was a common thing to think of America as a melting pot and this is something good. She also gives the example uh, in the 19th century that Britain, um, I know you spent a fair amount of time there now, it was the, one of the least racist places and in other parts of Europe and parts of America that were less free than Britain. So the American South certainly was less free than Britain in the 19th century that there was much less racism. I don't know if you've ever read about uh, um, Frederick Douglass's experiences of going to Britain. Um, he found it like markedly less racist than was American society, though American society was moving in that direction. So it's, I don't think there's a correlation between freedom and racism, but what is true is that freedom doesn't magically erase racism in the part of individual people's minds. So when we talk about the political aspects of racism and freedom and uh, whether freedom will lead to more racism, we have to deal with the question and the issue of the Civil Rights Act that was passed one year after Ayn Rand wrote this essay on racism and she mentions this legislation. But before we go there, let's let's see the what our audience is saying. So 
uh, I encourage people to send uh, their super chat. So thank you, Jonathan. Thank you, Marilyn. Here's a question which is a good one. So why were rich slave master racists, a friend asks? Surely they didn't think I haven't accomplished much in life. Or Onkar, to add to another element, many of the intellectual leaders, let's say, of racist movements are people of, they have a, a good education, a good understanding of culture. Uh, they, they are what we would say, people who have accomplished things in life, to put it this way. So why would racism have appealed to these people? That's not my reading of slave masters as a whole. I'm curious what you think about this, Nikos, but it is, so another way that she puts it, and this might be helpful, it's a quest for the unearned. And if, and this is part of what's true in the more contemporary view of, of the way racism works when it gains political, cultural political power, like real power. It's the, a, a slaveholder at some level knows. So you think of a plantation and they're living in like a mansion and there's people in incredible poverty, slaves on the plantation, brutal work, um, punished, whipped if they step out of line, I mean, step out of line, so, um, which means exert some autonomy and, and uh, uh, freedom and individuality. That person at some level knows that what they're doing is undeserved and unearned. And what racism as an ideology, it, one of the things it tells that person is no, it's not undeserved, it's not unearned. You're part of the master race. You deserve to be in this position. And those people deserve to be under your boot. And if anything, like you're doing them a favor, they couldn't survive on their own. They're so hopeless and helpless that you don't think of this as you're doing something bad, you're actually doing something good. And that's a way of propping up that person morally in his own eyes when he knows that he doesn't actually deserve this position. And a dramatization of this, of having bad ideas, and doing bad deeds, but having a rationalization that explains them in your eyes. We see it also in Ayn Rand's fiction. So I could think of James Taggart, who always tries to come up with something that will explain the things that if he really dug deep inside, he would know they're horrible things. And this also applies to racism. So I've read literature which is related to the lost cause. And you can see arguments such as slaves on the South were in a better position than workers on the North. Why? Because they were taken care of and it was, so they, they would portray it as if it's this society from gone with the wind where everyone cares for each, for each other and there's this big family. So there is a big element of rationalization there because I cannot understand how in good faith you can claim that being free but having to work a horrible job is the same as your life not belonging to you. So I think that uh, hopefully this, this covers it. So, but thanks, thanks to our audience for the question and looking forward to more questions and more super chats. So let's deal with the difficult question, the Civil Rights Act of 1964. Now, this is considered a seminal 
moment in the history of the United States in terms of a piece of legislation that finally brings to an end the, the horrible phenomenon of racism. So with the Civil Rights Act, the Jim Crow laws, uh, to put simply, are uh, recognized as laws that are unjust and are not anymore uh, in operation. However, Ayn Rand had negative things to say about the Civil Rights Act, and she characterizes it as an act which is a profound attack on property rights. So, and this has to do with the fact that the Civil Rights Act also makes illegal private forms of discrimination. So all these decades later, what are we to make of the Civil Rights Act? A seminal moment in terms of justice and in terms of the protection of rights, or a seminal moment in terms of disregard for rights? I think of it as it's partly just and partly unjust. And I think that, again, if people read the essay and see her discussion of this, it's it, the one of the ways it's put, I mean, so something Ayn Rand coined that now objectivists, it's, it's part of objectivism, the way objectivists look at the world, that it's a package deal. And a package deal means you're putting together in, in one thing, so in this case, one piece of legislation, um, components that are essentially different, and essentially different can mean um, here in the case that you're putting into one law, so there's aspects of the law that are good or just, and there's aspects of the law that are bad or unjust, and you're putting them all into one piece of legislation, so now you're, it's a package that you either have to vote for or vote against, and either everything will become part of the law or nothing will. And here, as, as you were indicating, it's part of what it's doing is outline discrimination on the part of the government. Um, and so that is really, really important. And it is true that, and it's particularly the Blacks, but if you put it as, as at the time that it would be put like, colored people, um, that they were legally discriminated against. And, and that sort of explicitly and more implicitly that if you pass kind of voting laws and register how you have to register and there's, and there's tests for this and so that are, that are meant to exclude one type of people from being able to register to vote. And so you are being discriminated on the, for racist reasons by the government. And that should, in the American system, be outlawed. But if you combine that with that you're outlawing um, private discrimination, and there was sort of a kind of equivocation between, because it's in places of, I forget how it's put exactly, but like it, it's in the public arena. So things like hotels, and stuff like that business with which they think of well but you're uh, you're serve the public so it's part of the and that it's no they're essentially private even though um you can use there's a use of the pub, public as as like for private transactions but so and she thought no it's irrational and immoral when businesses and so on discriminate uh, on for racist reasons. So you brought up like the signs that say whites only in this department store or drug store, no colors allowed. 
she thought like that's abominable, abominable um, morally, but people should have the freedom to do it. It's their property and you can in some ways act irrationally and immorally on your property. And what was required is more social pressure on this than that you outlaw it. Um, so, and, and because it packaged those together, she thought part of what it will do is a further eroding of the idea and the importance of private property. And what a shame has it been that some of the most crucial attacks on private property have been celebrated in terms of their moral virtue in, on issues that we all agree that this is bad. The obvious example is smoking ban. I think the smoking ban has been a very important moment, exactly on what you said, that it's become accepted that a cafeteria or a pub or a bar is not private property, but it's a place because people hang out there. And because people recognize how annoying it is to, to be in an atmosphere of smoke, they say, well, therefore, property rights do not apply there. And something similar I can see also with the Civil Rights Act. So the devil is in the detail quite often. And when we give up the principle, we find, uh, we find ourselves paying for it uh, dearly, dearly later. So, and yeah. I, I actually, I want to say one more thing on that. So part of what we're paying for in regard to the Civil Rights Act, I think of it as because there were not enough champions on the side of the original American conception of government and, and conception of individual rights. Another way to put it, because there were not enough actual individualists advocating against the um, government institutionalized racism that existed in the US, it was easy for this kind of package deal to of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 to come about. There should have been many, many more champions, uh, like alleged champions of freedom, saying what is happening in terms of what the governments of, the, and here it's particularly the state governments in the United States are doing, is really bad. We need laws that really prohibit this, and not just prohibit it in word. So part of, when, and when you read and see part of the atmosphere in the 50s and 60s, you could say nominally that a black person will be protected by the police. And so like it's, if you look at some of the laws on the books, no, like they, they will be, they're entitled to a fair trial and so on, but they can't actually get that or way too often they can't actually get that. So it's not just, what are the laws on the books, but are they actually being properly enforced? Which I think all through the South, there's many, many, many cases and areas where that's not true. And if people had been advocating more for that, that was the actual solution, that it's not just stop government from having bad laws, but make it do its actual job, which it was not doing in the South. The more that that doesn't happen, then the more it seems like, yeah, we also have to outlaw private discrimination, like dis private discrimination, or else how is this ever going to end? 
So you mentioned the states, and when we talk about uh, racism in the United States, the issue of so-called state rights has to come up, either when it comes to the civil war that ended slavery, or later particular states having this racist legislation. Now, the issue of state rights is, is an interesting one because we have many people in the wider, let's call it freedom movement, who say that the solution to an oppressive government would be more state rights. And I recognize the argument that says that, yeah, but state rights were the, an excuse for, for, break, for breaking rights, individual rights, at the degree of that slavery was. But also someone would say, wouldn't it be nice if today there was more autonomy in some particular state, therefore we would escape our central, the authoritarianism of the central government and find a refuge, a safe refuge in these states. Now, state rights is not the topic of the day, but would you want to comment on it? So what would be your reply to the libertarians who say, state rights, yeah, they get this bad name because of racism, but it would be a very good thing and it would provide many solutions in the world that we live today. If one uses the term states' rights, I think one has no understanding of freedom and of the American conception. And let me explain that and then what the, the proper way of thinking about this is. Rights pertain to individual human beings. The federal government doesn't have rights, States don't have rights, municipalities don't have rights, townships don't have rights. There's no such thing as municipal rights or city rights, and there's no such thing as state rights, and there's no such thing as federal rights. So, and there's the rights of the individual, and every government has to respect those, whether it's a municipal government, a state government, or a federal government. So that's the American conception. And then there's an issue of it's not states' rights, it's states' powers and the federal powers and municipal powers. And the American system has a division of powers. So some governmental powers are to be uh, wielded or exercised by the federal government, some by the state government, some by municipal governments, but it's never legitimate for that power, whether it's federal, state, or municipal, to be used to violate or trespass or trounce on an individual's rights. So the idea that, oh, well, yeah, but a bunch of states wanted to preserve slavery, which is, I mean, what is in the civil war is what is happening. Um, that does, like, the perspective of freedom isn't, oh yeah, they should be able to do that because they're states' rights. Like that's a complete misunderstanding of freedom. So the only issue then is to think, what are the divisions of power and why? And it is true from that, but it's a very different lens or perspective. From that perspective, the, the tendency in the American system, um, because it's being undermined in certain ways, is power has been concentrated at the federal government. Um, but I think the reason for that is because now it's seen as the government has all kinds of powers that it should not have. Um, and it, oh, and we've, I mean, we brought up the Civil Rights Act of 1964, the idea that the government should be able to tell private individuals, yeah, you can make these contracts, but not those contracts, and you can't make discrimination on the basis of sex or, or religion, you can't 
pick employees on the basis of their religion. So all of that, government shouldn't have that power. And so the more people think, no, government powers should be basically unlimited, the more it gets concentrated at a federal level. So we will get in the last quarter of the episode to talk about today and to talk about things like critical race theory. After all, myself and Onkar, we are teaching a course in the Ayn Rand University called The Road to Critical Race Theory. But before we get there, we've got a good super chat that uh, uh, brings, brings up a very important issue. So uh, thank you, Jean, for your question. So Jean basically asks, is there a harm in being in relating to pieces of art that talk about being oppressed and harassed based on someone's race? And this brings the question, is it, what are we to make of political mobilizations that are based on common, let's say, peril or oppression that had as its focal point race? And an example is the civil rights movement or the anti-apartheid movement. So to put it in different modern terms, would it be okay to have an identity politics, let's say, based on race when it comes to overcoming injustice and to to address the question of our friend i think there's nothing wrong in finding sympathy with a piece of art that talks into something inside you which is good in terms of fighting injustice or recognizing injustice as something abominable is something good therefore sympathizing with this piece of art which you might think it's a bit i don't know quote tribalist i think there's something good in it because the focus there is not on the tribalist part, the focus is we are focusing on something which is bad and my values tell me that this is something that needs to be overcome or at least that some people see this bad thing and point out that this is something bad and they don't sanction. So what's your take on this, Ongar? Yeah, the, when one is the victim of uh, racism, so of this kind of racial prejudice or bigotry, there is the part of what is happening is people are treating you now not like an individual, but as just an interchangeable member of a group or a collective. And they are making blanket judgments about all of this stuff. And that's the reality that you face. Like that's the reality of someone who's black in the South in the 60s is facing. That's the reality of a Jew that is facing in Nazi Germany. And there can be that, particularly people who are not facing this, they can be oblivious to it. They can downplay it and say, oh yeah, but it's not very significant. Just the, the, the tough it out. And there are contexts when I think that is the appropriate message. Like it is, yeah, you're, you're meeting some prejudice and bigotry, but there's all kinds of irrationality in the world. You can't let that stop you. You should push ahead. But there's also there you can downplay it that it's you're treating it as so insignificant when no, but that person is really experiencing obstacles that you're not experiencing and that you would find sort of expressions in the culture and including artistic expressions where that's being acknowledged. I think that is important that it, it, there is a danger though that you, so I wouldn't put, you put it in terms of identity politics. I would not let this define you that what now is essential about me is I'm the subject of 
bigotry, prejudice, and whether it's racist or some other irrationality, like that, there's a danger that, okay, that, like that's everything about me. Um, and you can go wrong in that, but you can also go wrong in, in like, this is not a significant part of my life that I face these kinds of things. And it is like, if you're a Jackie Robinson, it's hugely significant that what you're facing when you're trying to break the color barrier in baseball. And for someone to say, oh, why do you make such a big deal out of this? It's, it is a big deal. So there's a question also about the scientific status of race. If we get time at the end, we can address it. Otherwise, we're definitely going to try to address it on Clubhouse, where the discussion will continue. But now let's get to today and let's get to the so-called critical race theory, or to put it, because this is a contested term, what about uh -huh. all the people who think that they're fighting racism and they truly believe that they do so, but at the same time, view the world through the prism of race. So Ayn Rand in the essay puts it as that America has become race consciousness, or sorry, race conscious in the 60s in a way that is reminiscent of the worst days of the 19th century Europe. And we could think, imagine if she were around today, where, for example, you have big... Uh, uh, corporations uh, encouraging you to buy from uh, a particular community or uh, we celebrate Black History Month and all that stuff. So the question is, we could say that this form of thinking where you th think of people as members of particular races, but you do it in order to address the injustice. Could we say that, yeah, this is a form of racial thinking, but it's not racist. Or would we say that, no, you know what? This is actual racism. If you judge people not by their character, but by their color of their skin, as Dr. King, whom we celebrate next Monday, said, this is racism. There is no way to put it mildly, oh, this is racial thinking, but it's good racial thinking. So would we say that today we're more obsessed with race than in, in the last many decades, does this mean that we're flirting with outright racism? And is there any danger on that? Or is it just fear-mongering by conservatives? Oh, the woke left, the critical race theory is taking over and all that. Part of the answer, or at least I think one of the considerations to think about in answering this that is useful is that Ayn Rand views racism as a form of determinism and collectivism. So the determinism is, and, and you rightly bring up, I mean, if there's one thing people can tell you about Martin Luther King, it's this part from I Have a Dream speech that he's hoping that the, his kids will be judged not by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. Now, the one typically focuses on the part judged not by the color of their skin. Like that's what's happening now in the 60s and of 50s, 60s, and it's really bad. But the other part is to be judged by the content of their character. That makes sense as the contrast, only if you have an individualist perspective. So only if you think the content of a, their character, so of, of Martin Luther King's, his kids, his children's character, is determined by them. It's not a product 
of outside forces, let alone of what their ancestors did or something. They make choices throughout their life, which impacts what they think, what they value and what their character is. And the reason it's appropriate to judge them by their character, but not by their skin color, is they have no choice or control over their skin color. And it has no impact Like you're not determined by your bodily chemistry of which your skin color is an indicator. So if you judge by this, you're judging by an irrational method because the characteristic is irrelevant, but they do have control over what their ideas, values and character is. And that then is enormously significant for what they will go on to do in their life. And so it is appropriate to judge. So it's not a view that don't judge. It's a view judged by what's proper to judge and what is essential, which is their character, and not by their skin color. But it's that only makes sense if you think of people as individuals who are not determined and who are not part of some collective. And what's significant is like what is your collective good? So is it are you or you're Italian or are, are Italians good or bad? Or you're a Jew or Jews good or bad? Like it, it, you don't have a collectivist view. And that's what she's arguing is the antidote to racism. But anybody who still views people as know what your intellect and moral character, it's really produced and then transmitted. But the produced is the more essential, um, is produced by your body, your genes, your environment, and your gene. Like that's the, there's more sophisticated versions of determinism. But she thinks that all those is bad. So I do, anybody who's viewing individuals as you're really determined. And then if there's some element of it, it's sort of, it's their race, skin color, ancestry, that's racism. Um, and even if they think they're fighting racism, it's still racism. And even if we try to steal man their argument, because they would say, look, I'm not saying that something in your blood as a white person makes you, let's say, privileged. But what I'm saying, they would say, is that being white, you do not experience the oppression that other people feel. And this gives you an advantage. And I think one very unique thing among objectivism, in objectivism, and actually I've heard this from, from Greg Salmieri, is that there is no such thing for a rational person as being privileged and gaining advantage from an injustice. Because an injustice means that the person who is ambitious and the person who is an independent thinker and the person who wants to flourish in society operates in a society which is less Uh, accommodating of this ambition or of this uh, or, or of this purpose, purposefulness. So this is something that I haven't heard from any other uh, from uh, from any other intellectual of any other school of thought, so to speak. So do you want to elaborate on this idea? On this idea that even if you are someone, let's say, who is white in a society which discriminates against other people, still this does not give you any advantage or quote any privilege yeah th this is an aspect or an application of a principle in objectivism that which says that there's a harmony of interests among rational individuals 
a harmony of interests so that your interests don't conflict. It's not, there's something at a, sort of at a cultural societal level. There's something good for me, but it's bad for other individuals or there's something bad for me, but it's good for other individuals in the society. When we're talking about rational individuals and just the, the putting it in terms of the racism, you're um, in the 60s to have a view that, so let's say you're white or light-skinned or whatever, you'd be classified like that. To have the view that it's to my advantage that people of color, blacks and others are discriminated against, that they can't, they don't have polit real political representation, um, that a lot of businesses treat them irrationally, they won't employ them, they won't have them as customers. So, the idea that that's to my advantage is perverse. I want uh, to live in a world in which I'm free to think and prosper, but that the people around me are free to think and prosper. And it is completely irrelevant whether what their skin color is. Look, I want to be around Bill Gates and Steve Jobs. Like, these are people everyone knows, but I want to be around people who think and produce. And as many people like that as possible. And if we're, if the society and culture is keeping down people because of their skin color, you're keeping, among the people you're keeping down are people who would be rational, productive. And the idea that that's to my advantage is you don't know how to think properly about your interest if you do. It's the, it's the slaveholder, like that's his attitude. He thinks that this is to my advantage, but that's because he does, he's not rational and he doesn't view the world like I'm a thinker and producer. I want to be around other thinkers and producers. It's no, I'm not, I'm trying to get the unearned. And so th this is a system that allows me to get the unearned, but that is a rational view, both of yourself and therefore of other people. And I would say that there, there could be an argument that says that because something doesn't affect you directly, you are quite, you are silent about an injustice and this is something immoral. I would agree with this argument that the fact that an injustice doesn't directly affect you doesn't mean you shouldn't condemn it. But this is something completely different from saying that you almost bear a guilt, which in a way it's impossible to get rid of that guilt because if I have quote white privilege, and no matter what I do, so even if I recognize an injustice and I say, this is an injustice and we should do something about it, but I keep having this sin, I keep having this burden on my shoulders, there's almost something religious and guilt-inducing in this idea that by the fact of the color of your skin or of something that you cannot control, you're guilty of something. So, and I cannot understand, Onkar, it's so, it's so clear that this is a form of racial thinking, of this is a form of an injustice, which is very much, very, very close to racism, the traditional form. And it's, it's, very, it's very difficult for me to understand how is it that people don't see this? How, do, how is it that people don't see? We are going down a route, which is very, 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 to use their term, problematic. I think a lot of people do see it, which is why, certainly in the US, this has become a touchstone in the so-called culture wars, that people are disturbed by this 
outlook and this kind of thinking. That's different from them being able to know how properly to think about this, how to understand some of what is being said by these people who say they're anti-racist. And so part of the theoretical structure, which I know from your background, um, sort of in the left, you've seen various versions of this. The more you think of it all as power dynamics, then the way they, they think of it, like it's a, a, a person who's white in America, you've been at the top. So there can't be racism in regard to you or even kind of racist thinking about you. Racism is about the powerful exploiting the not powerful. And that's not what's happening. So why would you think of this as racism? But that's, it is a re, re I, mean, I mean, charitably, a reinterpretation. It's a really changing of the meaning of racism to now it's all about power. And that gets an effect and now you're substituting it as the cause. It's true that racist notions have gained political power, but the essence isn't that they have political power. The essence is the way that they look at human beings as, yeah, you're not really make choices. You don't, you're not autonomous. You're not an individual who should be judged as an individual. You're a product of your um, kind of lineage. And this is like the, the there is a real element in America today of the way people look at whites as, yeah, because I can find somebody in your lineage, great, great grandfather or whatever, who was participant in, slave, uh, in slavery in some way, that taints you. And that's, that just is racism. And the answer to how can they think this, how can they not see it? My answer would be tribalism and collectivist thinking literally makes someone minds not operate well, literally makes you stupid. That's how you can miss this very obvious thing that this is racism and collectivism and tribalism. It's not only a problem because it creates injustice. That's a huge issue. But another issue is the way it stops your mind from working as it should, uh, as it should work. But I see we're running out of time. so. Ongar, going towards uh, Clubhouse, what do we want our audience to remember and what are some further actions they can take? Uh, yeah, so we're going to uh, continue the discussion in, in a few minutes on Clubhouse. You can find it at the Ayn Rand Club on Clubhouse. So if, if you go there five minutes after this ends, uh, the, the room should be open and uh, I hope people will join us for further discussion of this. So that's what's coming up momentarily on Clubhouse. And then um, we've been talking about Ayn Rand's essay, Racism. You can find that in The Virtue of Selfishness. You can also find it online at bit.ly uh, slash AR dash racism. It is, if you're at all interested in this issue, this is one of the things, it's not the only thing, but it's one of the things I would definitely read about racism. It's a very interesting analysis. So you can find that up on our website or in the book, The Virtue of Selfishness. Um, and then 
uh, I think we, we have what's coming up next week on the uh, on New Ideal Live, which is, uh, so the, the, it's again at, at the regular time on Wednesday. It will be about healthcare workers uh, that they're battling with what it's been put as moral distress. So there, there's, I'm sure many people have seen stories about how many healthcare workers are resigning or on the verge of resigning. There's going to be discussion of that next week with, I think it will be with Ben and Alon, uh, definitely with Ben Baer, uh, one of my colleagues here at ARI, and I think Alon Journal as well. So uh, I hope people join for that next week. Um, and then remember to, if, if you found this interesting, to um, both subscribe to our YouTube channel, to like the actual podcast, like us on Facebook. It helps. Um, both boost the algorithm, but also if you subscribe, then you'll get notices about what is upcoming and what's been put up on the channel. So please do that. It certainly helps us out if you found this um, useful. So uh, let's, oh yeah, and, and you can send questions, comments, as well as uh, suggestions for further topics that you would like to see us uh, discuss on New Ideal live on in, in the podcast so you can send that to newideal at einran.org so thanks nikos for joining today and i'll see you in a few minutes on clubhouse you've been listening to new ideal a podcast from the ayn rand institute if you like what you hear leave us a review share with a friend and subscribe to our other podcasts this podcast was made possible by donors to the ayn rand institute Help support this podcast by becoming an ARI member. Go to aynrand.org forward slash membership.